So my wife and I were doing pre-marriage counseling for this younger couple, and they asked me when I graduated, and I said 1997. And I said, why? Why, you know, why do you want to know this? And they said, well, we know this woman, Barb, who is convinced that she graduated with you. And I said, okay, that's fine. Maybe I know Barb. And they said, the, the thing is, Barb's like 55. And I was like, all right, well, thank you for realizing that I'm not 55. I think I was like 35 at the time. And I said, well, why is that? And they're like, we don't know. We have tried to convince her over and over again that she clearly did not graduate with you, and she's just thoroughly convinced that it was you that she graduated with. And I don't know if it was my uncle, who I look like, or, or what, but I eventually met this woman, and she did not recognize me or know me, and I didn't bother to introduce myself. And I'm like, clearly you've just got a case of mistaken identity. And, and that's what I want to talk about today, is this, this idea of identity. And over the next six weeks, we're going to be going through this series talking about who we are as a church and who I think we all get to be as individuals. And I think it's, it's important for a couple reasons. Uh, but one, I think you've been probably been invited here, you've found us online or however it is, somebody told you about Hope Alliance Nazareth and you've come here. And I want to be as clear as I can be about who we are from the beginning. So you know a little bit more about us and, and what it is that, that maybe you're taking part in here if you, if you come regularly and, and join our community. And, and I think it's important for every one of us as an individuals, as you know, men, women, children, young and old, to, to understand our identity as individuals. What drives us? What motivates us? What, where we get our self-image from? Where we get our self-worth from? And I would argue that most of us if you're like me, are striving really hard to make an identity for ourselves, trying really hard to achieve some sense of, of self-worth through our, through our work, through our family, through our performance, this image that we're trying to build and portray to ourselves when we look in the mirror and to the world around us. I think some of us even use maybe what I would call religious behavior, uh, you know, religious activities to try to impress God or make ourselves feel good about who we are. I think we use money or position or power or, or these things to, to portray some kind of status or even perfection. I think uh, we use lots of words to kind of surround ourselves with these stories to tell other people to make sure that everybody thinks we're okay and everything's good. We use our kids if you have kids, I think sometimes we use our kids to, to help us feel like we're great moms or we're great dads and we're doing everything right and we have this image that we're trying to portray, this identity we're trying to build. And I think I've done this before. I think I've even, I've even used my failures or some of my hurt to become sort of this identity that I, I cling to and put up a wall and keep people out and not let people really know what's going on. And, and so there's all these things that go into building this identity, but I think it takes an incredible amount of energy and a ton of work and then eventually we live in this sort of quiet fear of whether or not we're actually pulling it off. And I don't even think really we realize that we're doing this sometimes. Spending so much time, money, effort, scheming, worrying, trying to achieve some perfect identity to win our own approval, like I said, or the approval of other people around us. So what I want to do today is share a little bit about who we are as Hope Alliance Nazareth, as a, as a church community, our identity, and why it is that we aim to have that identity here and how it applies to all of us as individuals. And I'm going to tell you the end now, uh, where we're going to land. The good news in all of this is that we don't have to work so hard anymore. We don't. 
We, we don't have to try and form this identity of power or perfection or competency or being the world's best mom, dad, friend, whatever it is. We can actually rest from all of that and have an identity of balance, of peace, of grace, uh, and, and ultimately rest in Jesus. So to help navigate this morning, to help kind of narrate this, I'm going to tell you about a guy named John. Uh, in, he's from the New Testament now. I'm going to tell you this story from uh, two books of the New Testament, Matthew and Luke. Matthew was a, a tax collector. He was a follower of Jesus, and he, and, and, uh, he decided to document the, the actions and the stories about Jesus and Jesus' teachings and uh, from the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor uh, who later said, you know what, I want to compile facts and stories about Jesus. I want to be able to tell other people about him. So these, these stories today about John the Baptist are going to be from Matthew and Luke. If you have a Bible, you don't need to turn there or anything right now, but if you have a Bible, you can read this on your own, Matthew 11, Luke 3, Luke 7, um, or you have it on your phone, you can look it up. I feel the need to say that to say that it's not just me who gets to read the Bible and speak to you about it. You can read the Bible and, and garner knowledge from that as well. So this guy, John. John was born into a first century Jewish family. His father was, uh, had priestly duties within the temple. And, and, and as such, John should have followed in those footsteps, but God had a different plan for his life. God ends up calling him to, to be a prophet, sort of like Elijah, who I was talking about earlier. God calls John to have this prophetic role in his culture and in his time, to, to like I, Elijah, to call people back to God, to remind them of their identity in God. You see, the people of Israel at this time, again, had wandered away from God, wandered away from the Lord. They, they were not following His ways anymore, and eventually they ended up under uh, Roman oppression. There's a series of kingdoms that come in and conquer Israel, the people of Israel, and eventually it, it settles with Rome, and Rome is, is oppressing these people, and they're living for years under this iron fist of the Roman Empire. They were, they were subjects of this kingdom rather than living in royalty or in splendor or in power like God had promised them they could as leaders in the promised land. And so the world was not turning out for them the way that they thought it should. They were living in constant disappointment. They were harassed by their oppressors. They were simply waiting for the day when a hero would rise up and restore the promised land to them, restore the kingdom to its fullness. What was happening to the Jewish people was that they had walked away from God. And they chosen to worship other things. And eventually, like I said, it leads to this, this captivity. And so they start trying to, to reclaim the kingdom that they thought they should have as children of God. And they started trying to build their own identity in lots of different ways. They, they tried to build it through, through military coups, right? There's these rebellions that come up under Roman rule and, event, and they just get squashed over and over again. So there's people that identify with this military might and they end up living lives of bitterness frustration. And others tried to, to build an identity by partnering with the Romans. They said, okay, if we can't beat them, we'll join them. And they link up with them, and then they start oppressing their own people. So they're linking up with the Romans so they could keep themselves in power, but they end up oppressing their own people in the midst of this. They're trying to make life good for themselves while the getting was good. And then there were other people who were making an identity by them, for themselves by being part of this religious elite, this religious ruling class, who again end up oppressing the people in a way by, by telling them that you need to wear all the right clothing, you need to do all the right things, you need to obey all these rules, you need to go to temple on these days, you need to give this much money to rebuilding the temple, you need to do all these religious external behaviors, and then maybe God will 
return the kingdom to you. But the more they strived to do these things, the more they fought with military might, the more they oppressed their own people, the more they tried to do all these religious behaviors, the more they were wielding power over one another and abusing one another, they found themselves more exhausted, more frustrated, more oppressed and beat down. And their identity was found in that of oppression and weakness and exhaustion. So it's into that environment, into that culture, that this guy John comes on the scene as a prophet and starts calling people to another way. He started saying things like this, the kingdom of God is coming. The kingdom of God is near. If, if you want it, you will need to repent or you need to turn back to him. You'll need to be baptized, he would say, and sort of this figuratively washed clean of, of all of this stuff that they've been trying to do. He was saying things like, you should love your neighbor. When your neighbor's in need and, and he needs clothing, give him clothing. He's saying, if you have a job of collecting money for debts, don't take more than what you're owed. Don't abuse your fellow countrymen. Love them. Care for them. And then what really got the people excited was that he railed against Roman leaders and he railed against Jewish religious leaders, these people who are oppressing their own followers with more and more legalism and more and more religious works. And to add on top of that, like if that wasn't attractive enough to people, he was also a little bit bizarre. Similar to Elijah, John lived out in the desert he wore clothes made of, of camel hair. He ate locusts. He ate honey. I mean, he's a weird dude, okay? Like, he was, he was odd. He was counter-cultural. But all of it, all of it made him very attractive to people who were looking for a new identity, people who were exhausted and tired and beat down. And they're like, well, maybe this guy has the answers. We're going to go out to him. And they would flock to him out in the desert because they knew something was different. He was offering them hope. He was offering them another way. He was offering them a new identity, and he was offering them God's kingdom restored to the people of Israel. So the people started thinking, naturally, maybe he's the one. Maybe he's the hero that we've been waiting for. Our grandparents, our parents told us, our old scriptures told us that that one was going to rise up and lead the people of Israel into the promised land, was going to restore the kingdom, rebuild the temple, and God would come back and his presence would be here in Israel again. Maybe this is the guy, we think maybe he's the one. And when they asked John about this, do you know what he told them? He said, no, it's not me. I'm, I'm not the one. Sounds like the Matrix, right? Like, I, I'm, I'm not the one. You're still looking for the one. He says, there is one who is coming, though. He will be here soon. He's the real hero. He says, I'm not even worthy to bend down and untie his sandals. I'm, I'm not him. He must become greater, and I must fade into the background. He will be the rescuer of Israel. He'd say things like, I'm simply trying to straighten out the roads straighten things out with Israel so they can recognize him when he comes. He was calling people to be baptized, and, and he was basically saying, look, I, I, I can baptize you in water. I can do this symbolic washing, but when he comes, when the hero comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to baptize you with fire, meaning this sort of internal radical transformation that would happen, and he says, and he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, John was, was able to, to speak to the external things, the loving your neighbor and the, and the works that needed to happen, but he was saying when, when ultimately Jesus comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to do an internal heart change in you that changes everything. That will be when the kingdom comes. 
So eventually when John the Baptist, as he's called, sees Jesus walking along the Jordan River, he says, behold, there is the Lamb of God. He is the one who will take away the sins of the world. He is the one who will restore the kingdom. Simply Jesus, not me, not some religious system. Jesus will do this. You've been waiting for him. He's the one you've been waiting for to bring about God's kingdom. So you see, in John's case, it was initially a case of mistaken identity. People were all excited and they thought, he's the one, he's the one with the answers. And he clarified by saying, I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. What I find fascinating about this is that John had them in the palm of his hand, right? I mean, he could have done anything at this point when there's thousands of people flocking to him. He could have raised up a revolution. He could have put himself on a throne and said, yeah, I'm the one. Come and worship me. Do what I tell you. Bring me everything that I need. And he doesn't do that. He points to Jesus. He knows what his identity is, to point to Jesus. So, whatever gives us our identity, can I just point this out? Whatever gives us our identity also has mastery over us. It controls us. It tells us what to do, influences our decisions. Like, try to think about that a little bit this week. When you go into your jobs, you go into parenting, you're having a conversation with your, your spouse or your significant other, whatever it is, try to think about where you're getting your identity from and realize, start to realize how much it actually controls you and has mastery over you. You are, in fact, serving someone or something, trying to form your identity. And if you really dig down, you'd find out that it, it doesn't give you any rest. There's no peace. There's no break from that. So John the Baptist has them in the palm of his hand, but instead of pointing to himself, he points to Jesus. It's interesting, sometime later, other followers of Jesus are now talking to him about John the Baptist, and they're looking back on John's ministry and and, and the influence that John had, and they're saying, what was the deal with him? Like, he was weird and strange, and people flocked to him. Like, what was happening with John the Baptist? And Jesus says, this. It's fascinating to me. He says, Jesus always asks questions in response to people's questions. Have you noticed this? He responds and he says, what did you go out into the desert to see? Did you go out to see someone who was weak? Someone who was like a leaf blowing in the wind? He says, a a reed that was weak and would would bend at the slightest breeze? Somebody who was weak? Or, Or did you go out to see someone who was wearing fancy clothes? Somebody who was connected to the elite. Somebody who was connected to the ruling class. The answer was no. We didn't go out to see somebody weak. And no, we didn't go out to see somebody who was fancy. The guy wore camel hair. Like, okay, so he was not weak, not connected to the elite. And Jesus says, you're right. You went out to see a prophet. You went out to see a prophet like Elijah. And then he starts to connect it for the people. And he says, this was the Elijah that was to come and to pave the way for the people to find their way back to God through the Messiah. A prophet like Elijah who would point to God's power. A prophet who was making the way straight for the true Savior who was coming. And when that Savior comes, the kingdom is coming with him. And what Jesus was doing in sort of a veiled way was saying, yes, John was a prophet. Yes, he was a man of power and spoke the truth boldly. He wasn't fancy and connected to the religious class. He wasn't, you know, powerful and connected to, to Rome. He was a prophet who didn't try to gain political power or religious power or worldly wealth, but he was a prophet who spoke the truth pointing to me, Jesus is saying, 
pointing to simply Jesus. He's saying, I am the Messiah. Friends, at the risk of sounding pretentious, uh, our identity at Hope Alliance, Nazareth, and at Hope Alliance Bethlehem is to do the same kind of finger-pointing that John did. Not finger-pointing like the religious leaders of the Jews back in the day who were pointing out all they needed to do better. Not finger-pointing like religious leaders of our day who are always pointing at saying, everybody needs to change, everybody needs to do these things different and freaking out about all the things that are going wrong in the country or in the world. Not pointing at a finger... Not pointing a finger at ourselves as a church, saying, like, look, we're perfect, we've got it all together, come to us for the answers, and then your lives will get better. We'll be the Savior. No. But to point a finger, like John did, to Jesus, and say, he's the one. He's the Messiah. He is the Savior. He's the one who brings hope. He's the one who brings rain into our dry lives. He's the one who restores our identity as children of God. So look, our identity as a church family, as a church community, is to speak the truth about Jesus boldly, clearly, deliberately, intentionally, regularly. And our identity at times will be countercultural, like John's. We might look like weirdos in our culture because we don't link arms with political powers or with cultural powers or even with a religious elitism. But we see our identity as a community who is called to point to simply Jesus, as the hope of all mankind, not politics, not money, not political parties, not religious performance, not culture, not even church services, okay? Like, we want to point to Jesus as the hope of the world. That is our identity. So, if there's anything you need to know about us right from, right from the get-go, right here from our first service, is that, that we're not going to be fancy, okay? Like, we're not going to be fancy. Uh, we're not going to put on some kind of show or performance, like stuff's going to go wrong and whatever. We're family. It's okay. Um, we're not going to try to manipulate people into our doors or into our lives by putting on some show. It's just not who we're called to be. We just want to point to simply Jesus. We'll maintain some kind of casual feel like this, where people are all welcomed in to the grace of God, where we, we're being authentic and vulnerable and honest about who we are is the norm. But at the same time, we will always point to the truth of who God is, most highlighted through Jesus in his life and death and resurrection on behalf of a fallen and broken world, constantly pointing to God's love and his grace and his care for humanity. We'll try to ask tough questions of ourselves on a regular basis to find out, are we really believing this good news? Are we really acting in a way that shows that? Try to ask tough questions of people who join us to say, do you really believe this? Because I believe that what we believe leads to behavior. But all of that, this idea of being casual and this idea of not just being on a surface level, but being able to ask tough questions leads to depth. So we want casual depth. This is one of our core values of us as a church is being welcoming and casual, but also being willing to go deep and to look into the hard stuff of life. So here's why we pursue this. As, as a church community, what I've seen our, our group go through in the last two years, what I've experienced in, in my life, and, and I know probably some of you have, is we have found that when our identity is in simply Jesus, our lives are full of love and grace and hope, forgiveness, transformation, freedom, and rest. We are most definitely still a mess. Okay, please hear me. We are still broken 
individuals in need of a Savior today and tomorrow and the next day. It's not like we've arrived and now we have a ticket to go to heaven someday and it's like, great, now I live my life. Like, no, no, no. Can I just tell you that in the last two years, um, here's some of the things our community group has talked about, and we've tried to bring the gospel to, to, to bear, to have an identity in Jesus. Here's some of the things we talked about. Um, debt that we didn't know how to get out of, pornography, smoking, uh, kids who were a little bit wayward, and we didn't know what to do about them, kids who drive us crazy, which you might all be in that boat. You can laugh about that even if your kids are here. Um, uh, we've talked about jacked up relationships with siblings, with parents. But in all of it, when we're a community group, we're encouraging one another saying, yeah, but your identity is, is not in those things. Your identity is in the fact that God loves you. The fact that simply Jesus has come to save us and transform us so that we can better navigate these situations. Do you understand? So, so what I'm trying to do here today is let you know that we're pointing to Jesus, knowing the whole time that we're not the Savior, knowing that we're a mess and we need him today, tomorrow, and forever. And so we want to welcome you into that kind of environment where Jesus is the answer, not us, not any program, not any flashy service, but Jesus. And we've found that in the midst of that, it gives us hope, and it gives us transformation and grace and love. So, okay, back to the narrative. Matthew, this, this author of whom I'm, I'm taking this narrative from, goes on after telling about John the Baptist to tell us about Jesus. That after confirming who John was as a prophet and, and hinting that he himself was the Messiah, he starts to warn the Jewish people. Jesus starts warning the Jewish people that wouldn't follow him, ones that had ridiculed John the Baptist, and now were ridiculing him, and he kicked him out of his town, kicked him out of their towns. And see, they had wanted a political kingdom. They had wanted power and authority, and they wanted physical wealth and well-being, and they were going to use whatever they could to get there. And Jesus was telling them, "I'm calling you to an internal kingdom. My kingdom is near, but it's it's in your hearts," he says in Luke calling you to an internal peace, and the people hated him for it. And they were like, be gone, get out of our town. If you're not going to come and rescue Israel and make us a new kingdom, forget it, you're not for us. So he warns them, Jesus warns them and says, okay, you're on your own. Like, he, he says, fine, pursue that if you would like. And if you studied history at all, you know what happens. Israel ends up being squashed even further by the Roman Empire. They get scattered all over the world. The temple's destroyed and has never been rebuilt. And they, they lose everything. But after warning, all right, listen to this, after Jesus was done warning those pursuing political and worldly and religious power, Jesus says the people who will actually find the kingdom, the people who will actually find healing in their identity are childlike. Matthew documents this whole thing through Matthew 11. John the Baptist, a warning against people who were walking away from Jesus, and then he says, if you want to inherit the kingdom, you need to be childlike that God would redeem and heal and give hope to those who aren't super religious, who don't have it all together and can admit it, to those who aren't self-righteous and think that they're perfect, but to those who are admittedly weak and broken and lost, like children looking for a loving father. He says, that is who I've come to give the kingdom to. And Matthew records this whole progression, and then he lands on this, this promise from Jesus. Jesus says this, after saying, come to me like little children, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary. Come to me, all of you who are burdened. Come to me, you who are weak, and I will give you rest. 
He says, take my yoke upon you, meaning be linked to me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, do you hear his invitation in all of this to a culture who was trying so hard to find their identity? Do you hear his invitation to come and be childlike? He says, I know you're tired of trying to build your own identity. I know you've been burdened by religious leaders who have talked down to you and told you you're no good. I know you're tired from trying to keep up with the culture around you or to gain power or to gain status. He says, come to me. Come to me and find rest in simply Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, trying to make your own identities and striving so hard to pull it off. Friends, this is the Jesus we're trying to pursue here. One who is gentle and humble and doesn't talk down to people and gives us rest. He doesn't browbeat us into submission. He doesn't talk down to us and tell us we're terrible and to get our acts together and then you can come follow me. He doesn't condemn those who've made bad life choices, which is all of us, right? He knows all about that. He knows everything about us. And he says, yeah, I know. I know who you are. I know the skeletons you have in your closet. I know the dumb things you've done, the people you've hurt, the mistakes you've made. Stop trying to cover it all up. I know about it. I know you're a mess. Come to me and find rest. I am for you. I came to give you life and life to the full. One of the greatest promises in all of Scripture is that he came to give us life. And so it's to that simply Jesus that we're trying to point on a regular basis here as a church, in our services, and in our community groups. It's that good news that we preach to one another when we get together in community group. We're freaking out about something and lives are going astray. We try to remind each other, okay, here's who we are in the gospel. Here's who we are as loved children of God. We don't need to impress anybody by being the world's greatest parents. We don't need to impress anybody at work. It's okay. We can rest in who God has called us to be. It's that promise of rest that we just speak over one another when we're feeling the need to perform. And it's that gentle, kind, simply Jesus that we claim as our identity as a church community. He's the one we're inviting you to join us in pursuing. Here's what I've discovered. This kind of teaching, this kind of uh, culture, takes a while to soak in. It takes a while to marinate. So if, if you are used to another kind of church or faith experience, um, this might seem foreign. It might seem too easy. It might seem too relaxed. It might not seem religious enough. Can I just encourage you slash invite you to be here for a few more weeks? I'm not, look, I'm not asking for my ego, for like our church numbers so we can pad the books. Like, I'm asking because I know it and I've learned it myself that I need to soak in this over and over again before I start to actually believe it, before it actually starts to become real for me and realize like, okay, my identity is in God. My identity is in the Jesus who loves me. I can rest, but it takes a little while. So over the next six weeks, can I ask you to come and just journey with us a little bit through that? If you want to give up after that because you, you, know, you don't like it, that's fine. But I just want to challenge you. Actually, don't. don't you keep, anyway, you know what I mean. Like, I want you to come. I want you to come and experience that. I want, if you're like, hey, I want to experience a community group like that. I want to have dinner and talk about this. Like, Talk to us, fill out the card, put it in the book, whatever. But we want to connect with you about that and let you know that's who we are as a church, it's who we are as a church community, and we believe that it will change the world, that it will change Nazareth to be a place of, of people who are a light for Jesus, who are offering rest to the world around them, 
and that we don't need to keep up with the Joneses. We can be a little bit countercultural, and we can stop being so heavily burdened by trying to build our own identities, by living in simply Jesus. Would you pray with me?